Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week another episode of Foundations of Fascism, a mini-series in which I chronicle the origins, that is the organizations, that are the origins of the modern right wing. This week, I'm talking for the first time about a company. This company is the Coors Brewing Company, which is now known technically by a different name because of a merger, but you know what I'm talking about. This is a beer company from Colorado in the United States, specifically Golden, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver. The Coors Brewing Company is the origin of a vast amount of money and power that went to the extreme right wing of the United States when it needed it most in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Coors was founded by the original Coors, uh, a family name, It was founded by a guy named Adolf Coors, although at the time it was spelled K-U-H-R-S. Coors was born in the Rhineland in 1847, in what was then still just a province of Prussia, long before the foundation of the German Empire. Adolf Coors first apprenticed to a printer and a bookseller, and then to a brewer, once his family has moved to Dortmund. The rest of his family died, leaving him an orphan. And so a few years after the end of his brewing apprenticeship, he stowed away in a ship heading to the United States. This means that the founder of the Coors Brewing Company and the Coors Empire was an undocumented immigrant to the United States. He arrived in New York and then made his way to Chicago, which was where a lot of German immigrants went to in the 19th century. He worked his way up various beer and brewing company ladders while also doing other work on the side in the Chicago area finally moving to Denver in 1872. There he founded a company called Golden Brewing. He bought out his partner and renamed the firm the Adolf Coors Golden Brewing Company. He remained the leader of the company until the 1920s, with a brief shift into making porcelain during the Prohibition era. Adolf Coors had several children and died of an apparent suicide in 1929. The company was then inherited by his son, Adolf Coors II, who was born in the United States in 1884. Adolf Coors II attended Cornell and was a chemist, and did some work in the porcelain division of the company during Prohibition. He had several children, and these people, the children of Adolf Coors II, became the foundation of the company in the 20th century. By this point, Coors Beer was a major brewing company in the United States, but it was really only distributed in the western states and it was unpasteurized, which is an important detail that I'll get to later. The eldest son of Adolf Coors II, Adolf Coors III, born in 1915, was the president and CEO of the Coors Brewing Company up until 1960, when he was killed in a botched kidnapping attempt, which at the time was an extremely big media sensation, about as big as that of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping some several decades earlier. He was the, you know, heir and leader of an extremely big corporate enterprise and had disappeared in the Colorado wilderness. His kidnapper was caught and was convicted, uh, although the kidnapper continued to maintain his own innocence up until his own death in the 21st century. With Adolf Coors III's death, the family leadership passed to his two younger brothers, and these are the people that I'm talking about most specifically in today's podcast. These are William Coors and Joseph Coors. Now, William Coors, the middle brother, is your standard old money businessman. 
He was a longtime member of the Coors board. He served on various boards of various subsidiary companies in the organization. He was also an innovator who helped develop the recyclable aluminum can and got his father to put a bunch of sort of test seed money into that product. This recyclable aluminum can is more or less the standard one that we see today. It is essentially so ubiquitous that it's jarring to see a different kind of aluminum can. William Coors is not as right-wing as his brother, who I'm going to get to in a second, but he did once say publicly at a conference for people of color in business that if black people went back to Africa, they would realize that being enslaved and taken to the United States was, quote, the best thing that ever happened to them. William Coors tried to walk back this statement, but it hung over his career and his, you know, reputation for quite some time. However, the real deal when it comes to the right wing of the Coors Brewing Company is Joseph Coors, the third son of Adolf Coors, the third and the great-grandson of the founder of the business. Joseph Coors was born in 1917 in Colorado. He was the regent of the University of Colorado during the Vietnam era and fought hard against campus radicalism. He was in charge of the Coors Company when it was hit by a major strike. The brewery workers Local 366 struck the company in 1977. However, in, instead of doing anything, you know, with the demands of the union or instead of meeting them at the bargaining table, the Coors Company just hired scabs. They just hired people to work instead of the union workers at the plant, and they just broke the strike. They hired people to continue to work at the company for a whole year. And by that point, once a year had passed, they had the new workers at the plant hold a union vote. And they voted to decertify the union at the Coors Brewing Company. This meant that the striking workers were simply out of a job and that the Coors Brewing Company no longer was represented by any union. This made it one of the big first steps in the neoliberal right-to-work phase of the right wing. You know, this is the late 70s, right? This is the origin point of the neoliberal sort of new capitalist wave against Fordianism, right? The, 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 the system of economics in which the idea was that you wanted to pay your workers more in order for them to be able to purchase the products that you were making, right? That was the idea. But this sort of turn, symbolized in this case, by this strike-breaking by the Coors Brewing Company, was a big part of this neoliberal shift away from unionized working, especially in developed countries like the United States, for example. Incidentally, this also inspired the plot of the movie Smokey and the Bandit. If you have ever seen this movie, it is a Burt Reynolds movie that is about a, a sort of illicit truck-driving team. Burt Reynolds is part of this team. He doesn't drive the truck. He drives a sports car, and his job is to get police attention away from the semi-truck, right? That's, that, that's the team, that's the plot of this film. And the idea in the movie is that a rich dude in Atlanta, Georgia, wants a shipment of Coors beer. However, in the late 70s and early 80s, it was illegal to purchase or distribute Coors beer, basically east of the Mississippi. That's a pretty generalizing term, but that's about it. This, and this is because major unions in the eastern part of the United States lobbied their state governments to make it illegal to distribute unpasteurized beer in their state. 
since Coors was the only major unpasteurized beer produced in the United States at the time, this meant that it was illegal to purchase or distribute this beer east of the Mississippi, more or less. This meant that this sort of like Coors beer had this sort of like mythos in the eastern part of the United States, and it was directly tied to and because of the Coors family's anti-labor practices. This means that in addition to being about the sort of like kooky antics of a white criminal who is being chased by a racist Texan sheriff, the Smoking the Bandit is also literally a movie about how to get around a union-inspired boycott. So uh, that's, that's some weird little movie trivia about Coors Brewing. The real important part, however, of Joseph Coors' career as a political operative was not about his union busting, although, again, that's a major part of it. His real motive and his real impact as a right-wing provocateur and actor was as a campaigner and a donor. Joseph Coors politics were described by his brother, again, the person who said that black people would be better off having been enslaved than having not been enslaved. Joseph Coors' brother described him as, quote, just to the right of Attila the Hun, meaning that, yes, this is a, an extreme old money air executive person and a racist who is saying, yes, my brother is to the right wing of Attila the Hun. Joseph Coors' politics were terrifying. The man was an extreme racist, an extreme neoliberal, and also a major supporter of the religious right wing in the United States. He was a major donor to right-wing activities and right-wing funds. He was an early supporter of the presidential run of Barry Goldwater, senator from Arizona, a neighboring state, to Colorado. And when Goldwater's run for president failed in the 1960s, Joseph Coors, like many other people on the right-wing in the United States, turned to support right-wing institutions that they thought would bring about a potential right-wing presidency. Those efforts bore fruit eventually in the presidency of Ronald Reagan, whom Coors was also a major early supporter of. Now, supporting presidential runs like this is what a lot of people think of when they think about how Joseph Coors affected U.S. politics, right? He was a big politician who threw his weight, a big businessman who threw his weight behind these major politicians. However, much more important was his donations to the right-wing foundations that are the things that I'm going to be talking about in this miniseries. That's why I wanted to talk about him especially. Joseph Coors was a founding member of the Heritage Foundation, which I've talked about previously. The Heritage Foundation is at the beating heart of the transition to the right-wing in the United States and also the transition of the Republican Party to an extreme right-wing organization. Coors provided the entire annual budget for the Heritage Foundation for its first year, and for all subsequent years, donated $300,000 a year. Now remember, this is the 1970s. $300,000 is a shit ton of money to be able to throw around extreme right-wing politics. Coors was a longtime collaborator with other right-wing organizations and other right-wing political operatives, including fellow Heritage Foundation founder Paul Weyrich. Another foundation that he worked with Ryrick on was the Free Congress Research and Education Foundation, which was a conservative think tank that Paul Weyrick founded in the late 1970s. Its purpose was to influence congressional debates 
and also to try to remove the interests and power of labor in congressional politics. It was trying to pretend to be a grassroots organization and also did a lot of direct mail fundraising, another thing that is an important part of the rise of the right wing today. Other things that Joseph Coors got involved with were the Council for National Policy, which is a group that unites a bunch of conservative think tanks and organizations in the early 1980s. This was organized by the Reagan administration, which uh, Joseph Coors was a major part of, specifically as a member of the so-called Kitchen Cabinet, a, an informal set of advisors that Reagan turned to when he wanted to shore his business bona fides. Finally, Weyrich was also a major supporter of a, an effort to create a kind of like early version of Fox News. It was called TVN, Television News Incorporated, and it was created in the late 1970s. The idea was that they would create reusable, syndicatable newsreels that various local stations could put out. This didn't really work. It didn't really ever get off the ground. And it wasn't until News Corp under Rupert Murdoch really emerged and took off in the 1980s that this vision of a sort of like pro-business, like, like a very intentionally pro-business news network really worked in the United States. But this is Joseph Coors really trying his best in order to make this happen much, much, much earlier in the late 1970s. So the reason that I've told you this story in this particular way is to show you how a business person, just like a, a pretty standard normal business person, Adolf Kurs I, was able to create a business empire which allowed his descendant, Joseph Kurs, to have enough money, power, influence, and connections in order to really lay the, the literal foundations of the right wing in the United States. Now, Coors Brewing has since, you know, become a sort of more normative business company. Um, it, it, it isn't directly associated with Joseph Coors anymore, partly because he's dead. However, I would encourage you to steer clear of Coors beer, nonetheless, because of its historical connections to, again, the actual extreme right wing in the United States. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. This is where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H-I-S-T of the right, and fascism15. And I'm on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you on Thursday. Thank <laughs> you.